Chapter 10. Entrenching Union Power Workers' skeletons litter the mines of this land. Many of those killed underground were never retrieved. Their families never had the opportunity to bury them decently according to African rituals and tradition. Franz Baleni In addition to wage bargaining, NUM relentlessly pursued non-wage grievances using innovative methods. The most important of these was the law. For decades, the mining houses had grown accustomed to the arbitrary exercise of legal and administrative dominance over the workers. The post-Vihan environment, however, provided opportunities that Ramaphosa was quick to seize. Soon after his arrival at Kusa in 1982, Cyril met with some of the sharpest labor lawyers practicing in South Africa. The Center for Applied Legal Studies at WITS organized a training workshop on labor for Kusa officials at Vilgespreit. The conference was set up by Halton Cheadle and another young lawyer, Paul Benjamin, in liaison with the two Kusa legal officers, Zoli Koneni and Cyril. At the workshop, Ramaphosa met the three members of what was to become Cheadle, Thompson and Haysom, the most prominent pro-labor legal practice of the 1980s. Kuza was still committed to the promotion of blacks in leadership positions, and this made it difficult for Ramaphosa to create a substantial in-house legal capacity. Labor law was in post-Vihan upheaval, and NUM could exploit the opportunities as presented only by drawing on high-level legal skills, at that time monopolized by whites. For Fasatu, this was no problem because the Federation was happy to employ whites in high-profile positions. While Ramaphosa respected Kuza's position on black officials, he pragmatically contracted out work to external white practitioners. In this way, he was able to draw on the very best of the progressive labor lawyers then practicing, including Halton Cheadle, Martin Brassey, Paul Benjamin, Arthur Chaskelson and Gilbert Marcus. The lawyer with whom NUM developed its closest relationships in the early years was Clive Thompson. Thompson observes that when Cyril approached him in 1983 to act for NUM, it was odd on the face of it in that he was very much aware of my association with Halton Cheadle and was equally aware that Halton had very established links with Fasatu. While Thompson was advising NUM, Cheadle was just two officers down the corridor working for Fasatu's competitor union. Thompson's advice to Num was crucial, he himself observes, because it was a time of huge churn and innovation in South African labor law and difficult for anyone not entirely immersed in the discipline to attempt to call the shots. The availability of some of the country's finest legal minds was to give the union a decisive edge in a fast-changing terrain that bewildered the mine managers. Thompson described Cyril's overall approach in this way. His key concern was not so much to argue the merits of a legal strategy, but to make certain that it supported or did not undermine his broader organizational goals, which were set pretty much exclusively by his union leadership team. He would make the large calls on whether to underwrite a legal plan, but generally concurred with specific advice. Ramaphosa's overall legal strategy had four key components. Firstly, the union clarified and enforced its access rights in its early informative months. Access agreements detailed the obligations of mine managers to allow workers to meet and hold ballots. 
and they specified that organizers should be free from harassment in the mine compounds. By drawing on these agreements with care, and then acting swiftly against any breaches, the union's lawyers overcame the resistance of recalcitrant mine managers whose presumption had been that they would continue to act without regard to the law. Secondly, careful pre-planning before disputes broke out allowed a number of defences against the abuse of scab labour. In fact, the law offered some protection, subtle but meaningful, against the use of strike breakers where a strike had been called in a procedurally correct way. Thirdly, in the bulk of the everyday work of the legal team, the lawyers dealt with the constant stream of dismissals, which were one of the workers' greatest fears and grievances. The arbitrary and often vicious nature of the sackings and the brutish refusal of mine managers to countenance the notion of fair process allowed the lawyers to make substantial inroads into this problem very rapidly. Finally, Cyril's hired guns turned the law into a powerful instrument for advancing the cause of health and safety. The union was still unable to act against silent killers such as tuberculosis that decimated mine workers and their rural families, but the legal mercenaries developed strategies to discourage the waste of human life in tragic and unnecessary accidents. At Schlobein Colliery, almost 70 mine workers died in 1983, soon after the union was established. 177 died at Kinross in 1986, 62 at St. Helena in 1987, 53 at Middlebolt Colliery in 1993. The union's new health and safety strategy took a complacent industry by surprise. Before then, civil claims had not been allowed in the event of mine accidents and injuries. The widows of dead miners and workers disabled by accidents or rock bursts had been paid trifling statutory payments. In so-called medical repatriation, crippled miners had been given minimal payments and then sent home. Soon the union began to respond rapidly and effectively to major tragedies, as well as to the endless stream of smaller accidents. With growing success, its lawyers pressed for the full financial losses incurred by mine workers and their families to be met. In all these areas, Nums lawyers initially enjoyed the advantage of a complacent and underskilled adversary battling to keep up with changes in the law. Nevertheless, the odds were still heavily stacked against the union. Ordinary workers enjoyed few tangible rights, and the administration of the justice system continued to favour the mine bosses. In the smaller mining towns of South Africa, such as Clarksdorpe, it was all too easy to get the wrong judicial officer, and sometimes it seemed almost impossible to get a fair one. The mine managers and the magistrates were linked by family ties and a culture of Afrikaner solidarity. Nums lawyers would sometimes enter the courtroom to find the mine managers, their lawyers and the magistrates chatting about the bry they'd enjoyed together the previous weekend. Ramaphosa was viewed by the external legal representatives as a very hard taskmaster. According to critics of the late apartheid white liberal legal fraternity, some of its members sought not only gratitude from the black people they were representing, but also market rates for their services as a matter of principle. Moreover, activists would fear detention in the months of December and January because the contribution of many white lawyers to the struggle 
was suspended during the summer vacation period. Ramaphosa did not always enjoy cordial relationships with what Clive Thompson acknowledges were headstrong and opinionated lawyers. Thompson observes of Cyril that, in the social context, their opinionated character was a source of unevenly repressed irritation and occasional resentment for him, but not excessively so, for he knew, and they knew, he disposed of the real power in the relationship. For the employment of these external lawyers, Cyril sourced funds wherever he could find them, among other places from the International Defence and Aid Fund, IDAF, and from the International Confederation of Free Trade Unions. At the same time, given the great volume of litigation and the increased central role of the law in the union's activity, it made sense to create a legal office in the union. Running such an office was not altogether an attractive prospect for an outside legal specialist, because such a lawyer would have to sacrifice a handsome salary for the union's flat-level rate of pay, which was then capped at a few hundred rands per month. Nevertheless, Paul Benjamin, who had coordinated the union's legal response to the major mine disaster at Chloban, approached Ramaphosa sometime in early 1984, offering to work for the union. He was an idealist with teeth, an accomplished and methodical lawyer, and someone highly committed to the cause of the union. All the same, Ramaphosa turned down his offer on the ground that it raised a policy problem. On the historian Vic Allen's reading of the situation, the problem in question was that Benjamin was white, while the union was still reserving senior offices for black people. If this is true, Allen observes, Cyril was still influenced by the ideology of the black consciousness movement. By 1986, the need for an in-house legal capacity was becoming desperate. The union was now a very large organization with hundreds of thousands of members, and Cyril had moved to a more ambitious management model. He decided to recruit a corps of skilled professionals in a new and greatly expanded head office. Marcel Golding, who had been running a radical Western Cape newspaper, was enticed to take charge of the union's communication strategy. Meanwhile, Cyril looked high and low for a lawyer to coordinate the growing deluge of legal work. The delay suggests that Ramaphosa was still determined that a black candidate should be found. In the event, a highly talented young black lawyer called Kuban Pele made an approach to Ramaphosa. Pele had earned a law degree from Witz and then secured a South African Council of Churches scholarship to study civil rights and comparative labor law at Howard University in the United States. In his vacations, he'd been working as an intern at the massive American Union Federation, AFL-CIO, in Washington, D.C. One day in 1985, he was sitting in his student residence at Howard University watching PBS, the public broadcasting channel on television. A program came on detailing the rise of the NUM in South Africa, featuring footage of strike action and organizational meetings. Pelé watched mesmerized. He remembers Cyril, a man about whom Pelé knew nothing when he left South Africa, appearing on the screen and talking with extraordinary confidence about the demands of the workers. At that moment, he recalls clearly, he decided he was going to work for Ramaphosa at NUM. 
As soon as he finished his studies in 1986, he sent a beautifully prepared and impressive curriculum vitae to Ramaphosa. Pillay was an attractive proposition for Cyril, a black lawyer with expertise in labor law, excellent academic results and experience in a union federation. Moreover, he was committed to working for the workers. Unfortunately, Anglo-American's gold division in Main Street was also interested in employing lawyers with just such a profile. One part of Anglo's recruitment strategy was to tap the database of the SACC and to look for any likely prospects on their scholarship program. Anglo executives Bobby Godsell and Nigel Unwin, who, as we shall see, were already well known to Cyril, identified Pelé as a likely prospect. As soon as he was back in the country, Unwin wrote to Pelé inviting him to come for an interview the following Friday at Anglo's Gold and Uranium Division. Meanwhile, Ramaphosa had invited Pelé to come for an interview on Wednesday, just two days before he was due to go to Anglo. Pelé was uncomfortable about the contradictory work opportunities, torn between his heart and his head. Anglo was a dream employer. At his NUM interview, he found a less-than-ideal work environment. The union was still housed in the dilapidated and unprepossessing Lecton House in Wanderers Street, Johannesburg. There was an air of confusion and tension in the building as a result of large numbers of retrenched mine workers camping out on the union's premises, part of a problem to which we shall return shortly. There were piles of papers strewn everywhere and an overwhelming sense of confusion, although Pillay was soon to find out there was in fact order beneath the seeming chaos. Pillay recalls his astonishment as a mine worker tipped a huge bag of notes and coins on a tabletop. These were the subscriptions from a union branch, he was told, and the local organiser had carried the notes and coins all the way from his mine compound. Pillay found a Cyril in a small and makeshift office towards the back of the building. Despite the surroundings, it took him only a few seconds to confirm that this was where he wanted to work. Cyril blew me away. He was humble, gracious, concerned, and he had an incredible ability to make me feel totally at home right away. Pele outlined his case for employment at NUM, and Ramaphosa agreed he was the right person for the job. The salary on offer was 800 rand per month, about 200 rand more than Cyril himself was taking home. He was told he could start the following Monday. Pele decided to tell Ramaphosa about his other interview. Should he just cancel it, he asked. Cyril's response was immediate and mischievous. The young man followed his plan to the letter. Two days later, he went for his interview at the operational offices of Anglo at 45 Main Street. He sat attentively through an extended presentation in which an executive outlined the glamorous profile of the mining giant, the opportunities it offered for career progression, its extremely generous pay scales, and the various benefits that would accrue to anyone who accepted an offer of employment. Pelé waited until his interview was over. Nigel Unwin smiled indulgently and welcomed Pelé to the Gold and Uranium Division. As he had been instructed by Cyril, Pelé turned to Unwin and said, I'm afraid I'm not interested in your offer. I would rather work for Mr. Ramaphosa at the National Union of Mine Workers. Unwin stared back at Pelé with uncomprehending eyes.
Pillay created what was in effect an in-house law firm for the union to deal directly with its flood of routine legal actions and to channel more specialized work to practices such as Cheadle, Thompson and Haysom. The key problem the office faced was a shortage of information. There was almost never enough time and knowledge to take preventive action against employers. Most of their work, for this reason, was reactive. There was litigation every day as the union dealt with a growing number of mass dismissals, arbitrary sackings and the fallout from wildcat strikes. They would use a variety of tactics to challenge dismissals on grounds of fairness and incorrect process using both labour courts and conciliation mechanisms. In 1986, when Ramaphosa moved NUM from Lecton House to the spacious new offices in Kusatu House on Jeppe Street, the legal and health and safety departments of NUM were able to occupy a whole floor. At last, they had the resources, computers, office equipment and space to increase the efficiency of their operation. Pele now had five people working under him in the legal department, and he began to build up a substantial database. Cyril did not allow his middle-class recruits to hide behind their desks. After just two weeks on the job, Pillay was sent out with a colleague to Kloof Goldmine, where his task was to advise workers engaged in a three-day-old strike about their legal rights. The inexperienced Pillay stood up to address the crowd of workers who were fired up with discontent and had gathered excitedly to hear what their union's representative had to say. Pillay told them straight out that the legal position was clear. If they did not go back to work immediately, the employers would be able to dismiss them. After a brief, stunned silence, complete chaos broke out among the assembled throng. For the next three hours, angry miners rampaged around the compound, burning down concession stores and stoning mine security police. Pele had to run and hide in a stormwater drain in fear for his life. He was ignominiously rescued by mine security and escorted off the compound. Later that year, Ramaphosa sent Pele to deal with a potentially violent standoff between miners and mine security during an illegal wildcat strike on a small mine in the Orange Free State. The mine workers were being held in the compound against their will, and they had massed together in an angry crowd. Less than a hundred meters away, a line of heavily armed mine security faced them. Pele and his colleague parked their opal between the two lines. He approached the workers, who explained that they decided to storm the mine security lines. The first wave of us may die, their spokesman told him, but they can't shoot all of us. Pillay shuffled across to the mine security line and informed the mine security commander that he was a lawyer for the union. When he explained that they were legally obliged to let the workers leave the compound, the security officials told him to fuck off. Pillay tried to talk to the mine manager, whose office was on the second floor of a building nearby, but the manager simply shouted down to him from his window and refused to invite Pillay in. The tension was now palpable, and the potential for tragedy high. In his desperation, Pillay took out his dictaphone, a large handheld recording machine of a kind then unfamiliar in South Africa, and waved it about ostentatiously. The head of mine security, a burly Afrikaner, peered at it mystified. 
Pele started to talk into the machine, pretending that he was addressing someone on the other end of the line, perhaps on a new kind of field telephone. In a loud voice, he mentioned a variety of phrases, the Constitution, the BBC, and international law, in his panic, scarcely knowing what he was saying. The mine security boss hurried off, looking highly agitated, presumably to tell the mine manager that the hotshot Indian lawyer was talking to the international media through some kind of new communications device. A few minutes later, the mine security line was pulled back and the workers were allowed to leave the compound. Alongside innovative use of the law, Ramaphosa gradually developed a professional media strategy. Nung's media profile was dominated by Ramaphosa himself, his personal authority, eloquence and clarity of expression making him a perfect television and radio spokesman. He'd been preaching since he was a child, and he could talk effortlessly and calmly, in a voice carefully modulated to its audience, in almost any setting. Cyril was also a natural television performer who stood out among the wooden and inarticulate politicians of the time. He was a young man appearing on a medium dominated by the middle-aged or old, and he retained some of the physical attractiveness of his youth. He projected urgency and controlled anger, and his sense of invulnerability and inner conviction came across strongly on the television screen. He was also a black man radiating confidence, who without hesitation or apology made demands on behalf of the most exploited black workers in the land. Ramaphosa was careful to manage his own media profile. He had a small set of carefully crafted remarks about his own past that recurred in almost every interview. Reporters would observe that Cyril's one real regret in life was that he had never been an underground miner. He was not averse to corny heart-rendering tales about relatives who used to be miners, and he could summon up the image of himself as a small child being pushed into a ditch by a white policeman. I still live with the scars. For the journalist Mono Badella, this Cyril Ramaphosa was a leader with a heart of gold. Cheryl Rain, writing in the Sunday Star, reflected at length upon the significance of Ramaphosa's media image in a 1986 piece entitled South African Mining Faces Its Cyril Factor. Rain observed that cult figures, particularly those spawned by the commercial press, are anathema to the emergent labor movement. But every now and then, the caliber of a certain leader in the movement pushes through. Workers' democracy, mandated policy statements and organization by committee give way to a hero in the making. For her, Ramaphosa was just such a figure, a workers' hero and media celebrity. Rain also observes, of course, that, in fact, Ramaphosa's one regret is that he has never been a miner. Her conclusion was that since the NUM was born in 1982, the mining industry has been forced to consider the Cyril factor. The power of Cyril's media presence was partly based on the uncomfortable truths that he was rehearsing. When he described the miners' working conditions, the racist abuse to which they were subjected, their deaths in terrible and preventable accidents, and the callousness of the mine managers, he was speaking truths to which his audiences could not easily close their minds. Ordinary mine workers in particular found it a revelation that their anger could be articulated in normally hostile news media.
For Ramaphosa, of course, the white press was not simply an alien force. At Sekano and Tuane High School, where he and his friends would scan the columns of the Rand Daily Mail, they were already conceiving the readership of a newspaper as a moral community. The Rand Daily Mail was the only staunchly anti-apartheid white newspaper in the country, and in April 1985 it closed down, an event celebrated by P.W. Werther as indicating that a new spirit of national unity was emerging. Black papers, meanwhile, were harassed and sometimes banned. The newspapers that remained were increasingly self-censoring publications, and one Rhodes journalism professor lamented in 1984 that few editors in the past 15 years have fulfilled their editorial responsibility of ensuring adequate reporting of news, which is of real importance to the total population. Building communications capacity was a priority for Ramaphosa. When, in late 1985 and early 1986, he came across three articles on the NUM written by a young leftist on a short-term contract with the South African Labour Bulletin, he did not hesitate to recruit him. Marcel Golding was a radical, labouring under a heavy weight of sociological education, but he remained a clear thinker and a direct writer. South African Labour Bulletin was a mouthpiece for the workerist worldview of the Fasatu Labour Federation, and it had hitherto criticised the NUM as an ill-informed and undisciplined mass union, lacking the necessary shop floor organisation to advance the longer-term class interests of the mine workers. Golding attacked this received notion and implicitly expressed scepticism about the dualistic view of union organisation it assumed. For him, NUM did have a mass character. However, it also possessed a very strong organisational coherence. The shaft steward structures of the union were in most respects as robust as the shop steward structures favoured by Fosatu. Ramaphosa enjoyed the articles, the first sympathetic pieces written by the intellectual left on his union, and he asked Golding to join NUM to develop its in-house information sheet, NUM News, into a proper union newspaper. In the event, Golding rapidly became the union's de facto press officer, establishing a network of relationships with journalists that greatly enhanced his media impact. Suddenly, NUM policy positions were expressed widely and clearly. As in the past, the amateurish and arrogant mining houses often depended on sloppy or even gratuitously hostile media relations, leading journalists to source stories from NUM instead. Soon, many hacks became accustomed to accepting media releases from the union as the foundations for their stories. In the tumultuous wave of strikes that broke out in 1986 and 1987, Golding was increasingly drawn into organisational work and conflict resolution, and had less and less time for the editorial and press work for which he had been hired. The media profile of the union, nevertheless, was established. The NUM's pragmatic approach to improving the conditions and opportunities of black mine workers was highlighted in late 1986 by the union's decision to accept an invitation from a parliamentary committee to make a submission about the removal of racial job reservation. The political context was a difficult one for such an engagement with Parliament. Government had imposed a national state of emergency just months earlier in a clampdown that re-emphasised the apartheid sympathies of the legislature. 
Parliament was preparing to amend the 1956 Mines and Works Act, which governed the operations of the mines. In August, a bill had been tabled to delete parts of Section 12 of the Act, the notorious section that enshrined in law the colour bar governing skilled work in the mines. There was a broad agreement between the Chamber of Mines and the NUM that the colour bar should be removed. The mining houses were keen to alleviate their skills shortage and consequent upward wage pressure by allowing black mine workers hitherto forbidden blasting certificates. For the union, the colour bar entrenched in Section 12 was one of the most offensive aspects of the apartheid mining workplace. The Norm's National Executive Committee determined that the union should present a case to Parliament notwithstanding the fact that a state of emergency was in place and that the apartheid Parliament lacked popular legitimacy. Ramaphosa, Elijah Barai and James Motlatsi together with a strong legal team that included Paul Benjamin and representatives of Cheadle, Thompson and Haysom, travelled to Cape Town to make their case. The committee was, on the face of it, receptive to their demands, although the outcome was in many respects an ambiguous victory for the miners. Although a new clause tabled early the following year no longer included a colour bar, it still made possible the abuse of language and educational criteria to block the advancement of black mine workers to skilled positions. In 1989, there were still just 100 black mine workers in possession of blasting certificates, around 1% of the total with such qualifications. As Ramaphosa's response demonstrated, his pragmatic approach did not imply that matters would be allowed to rest. He observed that, The Chamber has been devious in substituting educational standards for racial segregation. It knows that the standards it demands for skilled positions are unobtainable for the vast majority of the black miners because of the inadequacies of the system of black education. As membership numbers mushroomed, Ramaphosa had to cope with the managerial challenges of a rapidly growing union. According to the historian of the union, the rate of recruitment outpaced the growth of the union's administrative infrastructure so that it was incapable of servicing them effectively. In the early days, Cyril's controlling and perfectionist character ensured a tight ship. He was a hands-on manager who personally maintained control over office resources down to the paper clips and the stationery. He soon grudgingly had to learn how to delegate effectively and to make use of whatever skills could be found in the office. The staff and organisers, who were mostly drawn from the mines themselves, were for the most part poorly educated and lacking in experience. Num was so persistently short of staff that Ramaphosa had to accept almost anyone who offered to work for the union. Posts that were already funded by foreign donors, for example an education unit and a health and safety department, could not be staffed. For several years, the union operated without a bookkeeper, accounts were not properly kept, and members' subscriptions were spent without adequate records or controls. The abuse of office resources, and especially cars, led to the union incurring unnecessary costs that detracted from its effectiveness. Ramaphosa was a demanding manager. He has always been an exceptionally, even obsessively punctual person, 
and he required the same from his employees. He paid close attention to the details of his subordinates' work and was critical of what he perceived to be failures of attention or effort. Simpiwe Nanise, a young organizer recruited from the General and Allied Workers' Union, was one of many exceptional talents who flourished in Ramaphosa's NUM. He found Ramaphosa to be a perfectionist. He wanted people to do things right. He didn't like people who were lax in their jobs. But Cyril was also supportive and capable of considerable kindness. His approach was always to challenge subordinates with problems as well as to support them. His first question when a NUM worker approached him with a problem was, what steps have you taken? If he was convinced they had exhausted the avenues available to them, only then would he step in and take action. Ramaphosa continued to be preoccupied with the always parlous financial state of the Union. For most of the decade, the NUM was to remain heavily dependent on external funding. In its early days, it drew upon support from the Industrial Workers' Union of the Netherlands. However, as the NUM became a runaway success in 1984 and 1985, it began to attract the interest of Swedish unions, who soon became the key funding sources. The Scandinavians were generous and benevolent partners. They drove important focused initiatives such as shop steward education, as well as providing core institutional funding, and the disciplines they imposed helped the union to develop systematic and credible organizational and financial reporting. The NUM became the darling of the Scandinavians because of Ramaphosa's personal commitment to financial accountability and the good relationships he developed with Swedish trade unions and government officials in the Department of International Aid. A similar relationship with the British National Union of Mine Workers probably also helped keep NUM afloat in the second half of the decade. The politics of international labour solidarity were exceptionally complex during the Cold War. Unions were divided into two hostile camps. A World Trade Union Federation brought together trade unions closely associated with Moscow-aligned national communist parties. Meanwhile, an international confederation of free trade unions served as the umbrella for reformist Western European trade unions and the anti-communist American Federation of Labor Congress of International Organizations in the United States. Within the mining sector, this split was mirrored in a division between the pro-Moscow International Miners Organization and the reformist Miners International Federation. The norm was largely successful in avoiding embroilment in the debilitating standoffs between international federations. While there were political sensitivities about accepting funds from U.S. affiliates of RCFTU in particular, the Swedes were willing to bypass their own umbrella organization. Ramaphosa was equally happy to solicit funds at the opposite extreme from the All-Union Central Council of Trade Unions of the Soviet Union. Ramaphosa gradually built up the capacity of the national and regional offices. By 1986, the union had 32 full-time officials, around half of these in the national office. He had created a structure that could survive the death or detention of its leadership. It was still, however, a very imperfect machine. When Andia Baleni, the daughter of a worker on the Cyplas gold mine in the Orange Free State, 
arrived for her first day of work in the office in 1986, she found an administration stretched to the point of breaking. The key focus of the national office was on organization and recruitment, with seven of the staff working full-time in this area. They had no computers and relied on a rudimentary paper card system for recording members' details. The two workers in the finance department, who were supposed to manage members' dues, were underqualified, and systems for collecting subscriptions were rudimentary. Money was usually still brought into the office in bags and simply tipped onto the tabletops. The national office officials were assigned to departments for collective bargaining, organization, health and safety, finance, research and publications, and education. Most departments were perennially understaffed, and all of them were overseen by a restless Ramaphosa. In Cyril's all-embracing approach to leadership, he also continued to write his own speeches, handle correspondence, prepare press briefings, assemble materials for the negotiations rounds, and liaise regularly with representatives of the regions and branches. He was increasingly drawn away from the office by his wider political commitments. Cyril was never really successful in managing either his escalating personal workload or the growing organizational overload inflicting the national office. He sacrificed his personal life and perhaps his second marriage to Baragwanath nurse and aspirant lawyer Nomasisi Ntoshisa to absurdly long and relentless hours of work in the union offices. To relieve the pressure on other national office workers, he introduced a strategy of decentralization in 1985 designed to bolster the authority and resources in the regional offices of the Union. In its intentions, this shift of authority should have increased the accountability of officials to members, improved the management of subscriptions and spending, and reduced the burden on the head office. In reality, the national office continued to be the center of important decision-making, and representatives of the unions and branches flowed through the national office every day, engaging Cyril personally with their grievances and problems. Ramaphosa, moreover, refused to decentralize the collection of subscriptions. He was of the opinion that financial federalism would lead to endless conflicts over money and insisted that resources continue to be allocated from the center according to need. The other staff members were obliged to perform to Cyril's demanding standards. New recruit Irene Charney still recalls his first request for her to draft a letter. When he handed it back to me, he said, What is this? The piece of paper was covered with handwritten corrections. I never made that mistake again. We all looked up to Cyril so much that we were desperate to avoid disappointing him. Charney feels that this was a valuable stimulus to self-discipline for a whole generation of NUM activists. Wherever you look at NUM people today, they are successful. It was Cyril who gave us this opportunity and taught us discipline and respect. I will always be grateful to him for it. Members of the head office staff were constantly pulled away from their designated tasks by the more immediate demands of organization and negotiation. Irene Charney's own trajectory illustrates this well. Her early story bears some striking similarities to Cuban Pele's. Studying in England... She had seen Cyril Ramaphosa and James Motlatsi speaking at a rally organized by the British NUM. 
She immediately decided that the 500 rand salary was no obstacle to working for the union and decided to join on her return from London. She was to stay for 13 years and ultimately became the union's chief negotiator in the coal, diamond and uranium sectors. Charney had trained as a graphic designer. Like Marcel Golding, she was recruited to create a proper union newspaper, but within a few days Cyril called her over. I need someone to go to Dover Coal. I'm throwing you in at the deep end. You will sink or you will swim. Get down there and meet the shop stewards. In a society dominated by sexist assumptions about the capacity of women to engage in man's work, Charney's experience was typical of Ramaphosa's young female employees. Before her first participation in negotiations with employers, Cyril said to her directly, Watch me. You will only have one opportunity to learn from me. Watch exactly what I do. Whenever new recruits lacked skills, Ramaphosa would demand that they acquire them. Few of the negotiators could drive a car, for example, creating a dire problem of waste time and staff duplication. Cyril insisted that everyone simply had to learn to drive, a major hurdle at the time, and then to acquire licenses. In the wage determination process, he forced everyone to prepare rigorously in advance of negotiations, whether they would have to participate directly or not. He would make us study a company's financial reports until we knew its financial situation better than their own negotiating team, remembers Chandy. Then they would have to pull their human resources people from the negotiations and bring in their CEOs. Ramaphosa liked to say that the union officers belonged to the members, a position that on one occasion led to a major difference of opinion between him and James Motlatsi. Dismissed workers and some who had other grievances that had not been satisfied in the regional offices, would come to Johannesburg to appeal for help. In December 1985, a number of workers who had been dismissed from Rustenburg and western areas arrived very upset. Some of them, penniless and with nowhere to stay, demanded that the union provide them with travel money so that they could get back home. Ramaphosa discussed this problem with Matlatsi and Elijah Barai, arguing that they should allow the men to sleep at the union offices and provide them with some money to travel home for Christmas. Ramaphosa proposed an allowance of 300 rand per man. Motlatsi was utterly opposed to this action, arguing that it would set a precedent. Elijah Barai grudgingly supported Cyril. The consequences Motlatsi had feared soon materialized. The retrenched workers returned from their Christmas break in January 1986, but now there were more of them. Word had got around that the union was offering money and accommodation to members with grievances. Quickly, numbers began to get out of hand, with first 50 and then 100 mine workers sleeping in the building. At Easter, they demanded travel money once again, but this time 450 rand each. When Cyril made them an offer of 320 rand, they turned him down. It was Ramaphosa's style in such circumstances to diffuse tension. Once again, he partly accommodated the demands, even though the union's finances were already in a parlous position. Motlatsi was livid. At times like these, the two men, who had become almost like brothers, would row endlessly and then withdraw into an extended sulk, 
refusing to talk to one another for days at a time. Both of them were capable of intense stubbornness. Office workers would have to pass messages between the two men because neither was willing to talk until the other apologized for actions they could scarcely remember. After Easter, the situation in the office became untenable. The number of miners continued to grow, and soon there were as many as 400 people sleeping in the building. After appealing to the Central Committee and other structures for help, Ramaphosa seconded a team of senior regional officials to head office and tasked them with negotiating the exit of the now thoroughly unwelcome visitors. After 21 days of talks, they came to Motlatsi and told him they had failed. Members of staff were now being threatened with theft and violence by increasingly unruly miners. The slight but tough Andia Baleni, who would truck no nonsense, was told she would be thrown out of the window. It was evident that something had to be done and soon. Motlatsi's view was that intimidation or even force might be essential instruments. Cyril could not countenance premeditated violence, but he was unable to offer any serious alternative. He left the offices and shut himself up in his home in Soweto's Jabulani flats. Mutlatsi thought of Ramaphosa as a relative political innocent. He did not have experience dealing with the mob psychology of a group of mine workers. He thought they could find a position through persuasion. Relentless exposure to violence had hardened Motlatsi and the regional organizers. Where there was a faction fight, Motlatsi comments, Cyril would be lost, whereas I knew from my experience of dealing with a violent mob that persuasion could not work. They were disruptive, they were paralyzing the organization. Motlatsi and two comrades from local branches of the union met in the Victoria Hotel, close to Park Station, to consider the options. They decided that one of the three, Lebohang Klalele, would assemble members of his Grootvlei branch to persuade the mine workers to leave, if necessary using intimidation. In his history, Alan explains that the Grootvlei branch had a reputation for providing a heavy-handed security service for the union. Its members travelled around in red combis and were nicknamed Amabuto or the Army. Klalele took upwards of 30 Amabuto to the union offices in the middle of night. En route, he later claimed, he decided that shock tactics would be needed to drive so many people out of the building. He planned a sudden and brutal physical attack, executed by fast-moving Amabuto, who stormed through the front of the union offices. Allen continues the story. All of the mine workers were forced into the road and were dispersed, some ran out without their clothes. Many were badly beaten, in some cases, with broken arms or legs. At least one was seriously injured, and one allegedly died from his injuries. The members of the Grootvlei branch disappeared into the night immediately after the incident. Klalele then reported to Motlatsi that the office had been emptied. Unfortunately, despite this robust intervention, some of the occupying miners regrouped and made their way back to the offices. Once again, they entered the building and threatened staff with violence. Motlatsi decided that the eviction should be repeated, only this time with a contingent of union executive members and some students leading the fray.
The siege leader was a union organizer who had come round to support the protest. Though he was armed, reports Allen, he was overpowered, forced into the boot of a car and driven away. He was never seen again, but it was rumored that he'd been returned to his home in the rural areas. Motlatsi drove to Jabalani Flats and told the distressed Ramaphosa that the miners had been evicted. Cyril was not consolable and stubbornly refused to accept that the action was necessary. In Motlatsi's view, his friend could just not admit he was wrong. Did he ever come round to seeing that Motlatsi had been right? It was five years before he would accept this. The Union kept no record of the events of those days, and they were not reported in the newspapers. This saved Num from the embarrassment of being accused of attacking its own members. But talk of the events spread by word of mouth. Although dismissed Union members continued to petition the head office for financial support during the day, they would leave the building at 6 p.m. This became known as Motlatsi's Hour. If Cyril often depended on his partner, Motlatsi, to manage the turbulent internal politics of the Union, he was the master of its interaction with the world outside. He had a mandate from the executive that allowed him to talk outside the negotiating chamber and to deal informally with industry bosses whose cooperation was sometimes essential. Although Cyril had this freedom to negotiate outside formal structures, he always reported back in detail to Motlatsi. Cyril's work at EFK Tucker and his interaction with bosses on the Urban Foundation Board gave him a subtler understanding of the mentality of white business people than his comrades. He also had a far wider and quite different network of relationships. Motlatsi was a miner's miner, whose life had revolved around the industry for more than a decade. He never felt it appropriate to question Cyril about his life before the union. For him, the man was a genius in his work as a negotiator and an organizer. I've never heard a man so able to collect his words. And his trust in Ramaphosa's fundamental commitment to the interests of the union's members was complete. Cyril also had to earn the trust of mine workers themselves, despite his evident compassion and dedication to their cause. Miners often questioned his motivation in the early days. Eventually, Cyril explained, I found that I was well accepted, because looking at my own personal life, they found out that I had been in conflict with the state and had been detained. Ramaphosa's authority grew as a result of his relentless work rate, his fairness to mine workers who visited the NUM offices, and by the tales that began to circulate about his fearlessness, a quality much prized among underground workers who faced down fear every day. Clive Thompson remembers that some of the fearlessness took the form of apparent indifference to danger, demonstrated on one occasion when he had been detained unlawfully during industrial conflict at Foscor in Palabora in the mid-1980s. Thompson went to Palabora and brought urgent proceedings in the Supreme Court for Ramaphosa's release. The legal pressure obliged these security forces to release him even before any court determination on the rights of the detention and I went to the cells to get him out. He emerged barefoot and dusty, but essentially unmoved by everything around him, plagmatic about both his arrest and release, all in a day's work, almost matter-of-fact. No great indignation about his incarceration, no great jubilation or appreciation upon his liberation.' 
No sense of martyrdom either. He was just doing the necessary and wearing the consequences. Ramaphosa also showed no fear when he was underground. On one occasion he was over two kilometers below ground at an accident scene at East Rand Proprietary Mines, one of the country's oldest and deepest mines where a rock burst had 48 hours earlier killed several mine workers. Crawling along largely collapsed stopes towards the scene of the rock burst with half a dozen companions, the group suddenly heard cracking noises in the hanging wall above their heads. A mine safety engineer instructed the party to flee. The scramble to extract themselves from the zone of immediate danger took some 15 terrifying minutes. While being just as keen as everyone else to get the hell out of the area, Cyril was essentially unshaken by the event. Just another day at the office. While respect for Ramaphosa deepened among ordinary members of the NUM, he also had to quietly establish working relationships with the bosses whom mine workers so profoundly distrusted. He recognized that if the union was to grow, it needed at times to work closely with the mine head offices to overcome the recalcitrance of the most conservative mine managers. Cyril's key interlocutor was inevitably Bobby Godsell, evangelist for the modernization of labor relations within Anglo and initially the most acceptable face of the bosses to Cyril and his senior colleagues. Godsell had been in charge of the research division at Anglo, which had tried to predict and manage the consequences of the Vihan reforms, and he was instrumental in the creation of a new industrial relations department in Anglo's gold and uranium division. There were, in essence, two kinds of communication. A high-level channel between Cyril and Godsell was reserved for unusually intractable disputes or for the high points of the annual wage round. During the yearly negotiations, the two men would sometimes meet for breakfast at the Carlton Hotel, informally to settle differences that might become intractable if left to the negotiating table. Godsell was based at Anglo's corporate offices for most of this period, and he was not in daily touch with the gold division. The second and more routine interlocutor was Nigel Unwin, head of industrial relations at the gold and uranium division. He was the same Unwin who later tried unsuccessfully to woo Cuban Pillay to 45 Main Street. Unwin dealt on a day-to-day basis with the relations between union and management. When NUM had concerns about the action of particular mine managers or problems at mine level, Cyril would contact Unwin directly. When Anglo was concerned about mine worker violence or indiscipline, Unwin would raise the matter directly with Cyril. This channel was a boon to both sides, allowing the negotiators and dealmakers at the centre to manage their own hardliners, be they conservative mine managers or problematic local union organisers. Motlatsi was aware of Ramaphosa's communication with prominent business leaders, but Cyril's prior knowledge of Godsell and his friendship with Menel were matters he apparently did not reveal even to his closest friends. Vic Allen observes that Cyril could never have obtained the confidence of this small group of mine workers who formed the nucleus of the NUM if they'd known about his association with the Menel family or even that he had met Bobby Godsell socially. Allen reflects the conventional wisdom within the union that 
Gotsell's role during the strike was to put a liberal facade over the activities of Anglo-American at mine level, although they were as ruthless as the worst of the mining companies. If Cyril had been found consorting with Anglo officials, he would have lost all credibility with NUM officials and rank-and-file members. Like wage bargaining itself, the Anglo channels drew the key parties on each side closer together. As we have seen, the toughest and longest battles in the negotiating process are with one's own side and not with the avowed enemy. The mining houses would struggle bitterly to reach a common negotiating position, while the union desperately battled to rally workers. The senior negotiators on both sides naturally came to recognize the constraints under which their opposite numbers labored, and to understand the difficulties in dealing with their own constituencies. Indeed, the channels between NUM and Anglo were so vital precisely because neither side could really control its own constituency. The mine managers were a breed apart, rising through the ranks at a mine proud of their technical prowess and jealously guarding their autonomy from company head offices. They were mostly implacable defenders of a mine culture in which the Induna system, hostile control, ethnic manipulation and shoot-first mine security were the established instruments for getting ore out of the ground in a demanding technical and financial environment. A gulf also separated the ordinary mine workers from their leadership in Lecton House. Bitter divisions between grades of workers sometimes broke out, with skilled workers jealously guarding their privileges and wage differentials. Within the compounds, conflicts would flare up that the union leadership had no possibility of controlling. Even Motlatsi was keenly aware of the limits of his influence over aroused workers. It was hard work for both teams to ensure that the agreements they struck in Johannesburg were enforced in the mine shafts and compounds. The negotiators shared a scepticism about the words and motivations of people who were purportedly on their own side. Moreover, they developed relationships of qualified trust. But these fragile bonds were about to be shattered by the most devastating year in the history of the South African mining industry.